Thanks, Martin. Let me offer a word of prayer. We've been singing about the friends that we have in Jesus, and many of us here in this place tonight know Jesus as a friend. If we have someone as a friend, then we like to learn more about him or her. And if we have someone as a friend, then we like to please him or her. And now, Lord Jesus, we pray for both of these things for ourselves with you as our friend, that we might learn more about you and we might learn how better, how best to please you. Amen. So it's about freedom. One of the great words in this or any age, perhaps especially in this age, it seems um, from the 1960s onwards, especially uh, many of the old authorities have been thrown off and discarded of government, of parents, of teachers, of churches and so on in the quest for freedom. That's a very great uh, quest and I guess that many good people would place it near or at the top of their agenda of desirable things, and why not? So much good has been achieved in the name of freedom. We speak of different kinds of freedom. Freedom of the press, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, free trade, freedom of conscience, uh, 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 freedom, uh, sexual freedom. Again, another thing which has really come in, uh, especially since the 1960s, in the past 50 years. And uh, freedom over my own self. It's my mind, my body, my choice. There's a particular emphasis, an acute emphasis on freedom in our own day. Such that, I think, that a mantra for many people, and I wonder if you've heard people say this, I wonder if you've thought it yourself, without the expletive that's been deleted, which you often find on mugs, T-shirts, and other things carrying the slogan, do whatever you want, just don't hurt people. Does that ring a bell with you? You've heard it said, you've read it, maybe thought it. Do whatever you want, just don't hurt other people. So a young man might say, it's up to me how much I drink. If I drink myself into an early grave, it's my choice. Don't interfere. A couple, married or unmarried, same sex or other sex, a couple, any couple, might say, what we do together behind closed doors is none of your business. Keep your nose out. The friends and advisors of a young woman who becomes unexpectedly pregnant might, say to, might well say to her, it's your body, it's your choice whether you keep this baby or not. Do whatever you want, just don't hurt other people. As a text, as a mantra for today's age, however, there are a number of howevers that we need to, uh, 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 we need to read it with 
rather than simply taking it, I think, at face value. The idea of total freedom for the individual is fraught with a number of issues and problems and concerns. Number one, there are always constraints on freedom. There are the constraints that come because we have frail bodies and we have finite minds. Plus, we can never completely rid ourselves, however much we may wish to or try, of the constraints that come from our upbringing and from our environment. We may wish ourselves free from parental influence and from the environment around us, but we cannot. As a fairly new grandfather, uh, I have been struck once again, as I was struck with our own children, about the amount of shaping and formation and development that takes place in the first few years of life, of which, concerning which, the child in the future will remember nothing except that child has been shaped in unimaginable ways by their upbringing and their environment. There are always constraints on freedom, simply because we are finite creatures. And there's always a price for freedom. If a person wants the freedom that comes, the economic freedom that comes from having plenty of money, that person is likely to need to work hard and to give up, sacrifice quite a lot of things in order to get a good income. Similarly, if somebody wants the expressive freedom, which I would love, of being able to play a musical instrument, as well as Simon or a number of other people I know, then again, that's not likely to come overnight. That comes with hard work and with sacrifice. To have the freedom for these and many other things, other things need to be sacrificed and given up. When we treat freedom as the ultimate good, then there is always a risk of harm, both to ourselves and to others. Two things that are in the news just at the moment are, first of all, um, uh, no-fault divorce. Seen that in the, news, in the news recently? And it's seen by those who propose there to be a provision for no-fault divorce to be a liberating, a compassionate thing. But is it really... Think about the difference between entering into married life with, a, the, with the clear promise and intention of staying beside one another until death us do part, compared with entering into marriage with the thought in the back of your mind that if this doesn't work out, we can quite easily get a divorce. We can stay married not until death us do part, but until the death of love <laughs> parts us. I maintain there's a huge difference between those two different kinds of commitment. And I will not, I dare not say that no fault divorce is not likely to harm individuals or couples. Or take another thing that's in the news just in the last few weeks about... Uh, the, provision, the, the government's intention 
as, uh, as a matter of compassion on its, on its part to enable medical abortions, the second pill in a medical abortion, to be taken by the woman at home. Now, that is touted as something being compassionate and caring and so on, but is it? Is there no uh, potential for harm? I say, and I think if you, th if you reflect on that, you will, you will perhaps agree with me, there is potential for harm, not least to the young woman, already potentially harmed in many ways by giving up her child to a termination. And there are already stories around of the tragedy of a young woman sitting in the toilet, weeping, not out of pain, but because she has just seen what she has, uh, what she has aborted and is now about to flush it down the pan. She has seen that tiny form. We cannot say in these intended compassionate acts that there is no harm to be done. There's always a risk of harm when we want to enlarge freedom as being the ultimate, to be the ultimate uh, desirable thing. And then again, and perhaps most widely and most importantly, um, with regard to freedom, there are always other people to consider. Because we are constituted as social animals. We cannot live happily, endlessly, on our own. It is an emotional, a psychological impossibility. We need one another. So supposing two people set out on a friendship, or indeed two people set out on courtship and marriage, and one says to the other, I want to be your friend, I want to be your husband, but at the same time I want to do whatever I like, I want to be free to do whatever I like, how long would that friendship, how long would that marriage last? A few days at the most, wouldn't it? Because we need one another. In fact, much of our greatest fulfillment comes from giving ourselves in love and friendship to others. Here's a quote from uh, a psychologist called Abraham Maslow, not known, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, as a, uh, a, as a Christian. He was, in fact, a humanist. But I think he touched on a real and uh, simple but uh, profound truth when he said, I never met a happy individual who was not committed to a job or cause outside himself. We might want to add to or to a person outside himself. I think, I don't think I need to persuade you of the truth of that. I think we know that intuitively to be true, don't we? We find it true in our hearts and in our experience. We also find ourselves so curved in on ourselves that we often don't live up to that truth. And why we try to please ourselves and go our own way while still knowing that the path of real liber liberty and happiness lies a lot through that door. Now, I know what you're thinking. He's 11 minutes in, <laughs> and we ha haven't mentioned in any serious way God, Jesus, or the Bible yet. 
And the reason for that is because I think the truths that we've considered so far, this kind of critique of the God of freedom, we do know intuitively why, why what Christians call um, a general revelation. God has given us a sense of who we are and how we fit into the world that we can uh, examine with our reasons and our conscience and reach this far in, uh, in understanding uh, God's will for our lives. But we do need to ask, what critique, what further critique, or what else does the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, add to what we already know and have already covered concerning this subject of freedom? It might be thought that religion generally, and Christianity in particular, are essentially restrictive and repressive and rule-bound ideologies. But it's not so. Jesus entered into his public ministry by declaring freedom for the prisoners and release for the oppressed. Later on, he said... If the Son, referring to himself, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Apostle Paul said it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. As though Paul wants to say there's these two freedoms, the freedom that Jesus has given you and the freedom that you can then now live in the light of what you've been given. You are free, be free, become what you are. Again, Paul writes, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And James writes in his little epistle about the perfect law that gives freedom. So in these texts and many others too, the Bible has a lot to say about freedom, while at the same time critiquing the kind of God of freedom that we are considering earlier. Jesus said many remarkable things. Don't ever think that Jesus' teaching is simple or obvious or not challenging. Our discussion this morning, (laughs) Simon. Um, uh, And here's one of the, uh, well, at first glance, very odd things that Jesus said. If you try to keep your life for yourself, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will find true life. So confirming and taking much further that idea of Maslow and many others, that we find real happiness and real fulfillment outside of ourselves. Jesus answers that and addresses that by saying, you'll find it in me and in serving me and my gospel, my good news. And you know the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus is full of those kind of conundrums, those kind of paradoxes about you thought it was like this, but in fact it's the other way around. There's um, a line, the first line in fact, of an old hymn that some of uh, you uh, will have sung in the past, no doubt, um, which is very stark and yet is so true. It begins like this, Make me a captive, Lord, then I shall be free. Can you get your head around that? If that's an unfamiliar idea to you, can you begin to get your head around that? 
that to be captive to Jesus is to become free because you're committed to a cause and to a person outside of yourself and bigger than yourself and better than yourself. And so we come finally, after a quarter of an hour, to our text. Sometimes, usually, preachers begin with their text. I'm kind of <laughs> moving towards the end uh, with mine. So let's, uh, it's so short, this reading, so let's look at it again. Uh, Jesus declares, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Do you see the invitation here? Jesus says, come to me. Elsewhere we read that Jesus, uh, that God through Jesus created everything. Everything that is. Nothing was made without Jesus. And it's that Jesus who says, come to me. Not to an idea, not to a book, not to an ideal, not to a set of rules. Come to me. See the invitation. And then see to the offer. He says what he will give you is rest. Rest from your own exertions. Rest from your own self-reliance. Rest from self-despair. Jesus says, I will give you rest. You will find rest for yourselves. Come to me and I offer you rest. Do you sense the freedom on offer there. And then there is the reassurance. Because we say to Jesus, who invites us and offers us, so what do I have to do? Nothing at all? And Jesus actually says, well, yes, I do have some work for you to do. I want to put a yoke. You know what a yoke is. It's a a yoke that would go across a single or, or a pair of oxen so they can pull a load. Oxen have got work to do. They're working animals. And Jesus says, yes, I have a yoke for you, but look, the yoke is easy and the burden is light. Does that mean we don't have to work hard as Christians? Well, no, not really. It means the work that we do do as Christians is easy because we want to do it. It's easy because it's a delight. The whole of practical Christian teaching can be summed up, I think, in two words, both beginning with G. Grace and gratitude. Grace is the undeserving mercy and love we receive from God. And gratitude sums up everything that we do in return. Now, to do something for somebody else out of gratitude is a pleasure, isn't it? You do it because you want to, not because you have to. It's like breathing in and breathing out. As we breathe in God's grace in Christ, we then breathe out in gratitude. All of the things that Jesus wants us to do and that we want to do for him and with him. The Apostle Paul had this very bold statement to make which again appears to put 
um, a heavy burden on us. You are not your own. You do not own yourself anymore, he says to his fellow Christians. You are bought at a price. But look at the grace there is in that teaching. You were bought as a Christian at a price. Jesus paid that price. What are you worth to Jesus for him to pay the price for your redemption, to buy you back from sin and from the world and from the devil? He paid the the ultimate price of his own life on the cross. That's the price he paid so that we might become his. We are not our own. We are his. And we serve him gladly out of gratitude. I found a a lovely verse written by John Newton. Um, Hymn writer, yes, the John Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, but quite a lot of other very fine hymns. Here's how he writes. Our pleasure... And our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Jesus invites. Jesus offers. Jesus reassured. Many of us here in church tonight have heard that call and have responded and are learning what it means to serve Jesus with gladness, with gratitude. Will you, if you haven't reached that point, consider that offer yourself? Consider it now in prayer. Consider it with uh, those sitting around you at the close of the service, or with Richard or myself. Consider coming along to the Discover course, where you can explore this and other big questions in more detail, and have your own questions uh, 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 dealt with and, and, and listened to carefully. But do consider the offer of Jesus, and the real freedom contained in that offer. I invite you to join with me in a prayer attributed to a great Christian called Augustine from many centuries ago. And if you can just glance at those words, if you feel that you can make those words your own, then let us say them together. Just give you a moment to glance through what I'm asking you, inviting you to say. Noting especially that penultimate line, very famous line, whose service is perfect freedom. Shall we say it together then? Eternal God, the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, and strength of the wills that serve you, grant us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may truly serve you. His service is perfect freedom. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.